Hi, I'm Will. And I'm Mike. And we're both product designers, and you're listening to This TBH, a podcast about product design. This week, we're talking about design and healthcare. We'll be talking to Daniel Berker about the work he's doing with Resolve to Save Lives to combat hypertension in India, Bangladesh, and Ethiopia. Daniel is currently the Director of Product and Design at Resolve to Save Lives, but he has a long and storied career that has undoubtedly shaped the landscape of the internet as we know it today. Daniel worked as the Creative Director for Dig, Director of Design for Tiny Spec, the company that later became Slack, and was a design partner at Google Ventures. Whether you've heard of Daniel or not, you've certainly seen his work. He helped design the Firefox logo in 2004, He's widely credited with designing the first upgrade button and helped author Sprint, the book on design sprints alongside Jake Knapp. Needless to say, we were very excited to speak with him for the show. Here's what he had to say when we sat down with him last week. Hey, Daniel. Thank you for taking the time to come on and speak with Will and I. People might know you previously from your work at Google, co-authoring the book on design sprints perhaps, or your time at Dig, maybe. But you're working in health now, right? So perhaps you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so about three and a half years ago, I left Google Ventures to join a not-for-profit. And uh, what actually happened is I met this um, this man named Dr. Tom Frieden. And Tom ran the Centers for Disease Control for President Obama. Um, Tom came to me and he said, listen, I've set up this not-for-profit and what we're working on is trying to work on the unsexy problems that have the greatest opportunity to save the most lives. And if you look at, at where death happens around the world, the number one killer in the world is cardiovascular disease. So in particular, heart attacks and strokes kill more people than all infectious diseases combined. Hypertension alone, if you could help increase the control of hypertension, which is high blood pressure, you could save 100 million lives in, in, the, in the next 30 years. Tom gave me this pitch, and I was like, you know, in Silicon Valley, especially working in, I was in venture capital at the time, you hear a lot of big pitches. And when he gave me that pitch, I was like, oh, that's that's bold. And then he showed me what, what needs to happen. And it's none of it's rocket science. It's, it's not um, experimental medicine. This is applying known methods for controlling hypertension in a public health way, so large populations, but doing it at massive scale. So kind of applying the kinds of things that work in a place like Canada, which has a very homogenous, well-funded health system, if you can apply those, the types of basic things they did well in a place like India or China, Ethiopia, Nigeria, you could save a huge number of lives every year. And the interesting thing is you have to do a lot of public health stuff, right? So you need to do things like training doctors, you know, reconfiguring health systems, uh, choosing different treatment algorithms, buying enough medications to treat enormous volumes of patients. But you also need to know what's being successful where. And so what you really need is a great data system. And the challenges in many of these low and middle income countries is they don't have great electronic health records in the field. And much of the data is still on paper. And it's really hard to tell how many patients you're treating and even harder to tell how many patients are being um, treated well so that their hypertension is being controlled. So what I'm doing is making a piece of software, kind of a software system that is used by clinicians, so healthcare workers, in places like India, Bangladesh, and Ethiopia to record 
every one of their hypertensive patients at every visit within the clinical constraints of those clinics. So these are places where like a patient might see a doctor for only two to three minutes. So how can we record just enough data about that patient to both make the patient, you know, help the clinician, um, uh, help the patient to be healthier, but also to inform the public health system so you can see what's working and what's not working and make adjustments and then see if your adjustments have an effect. So I build a feedback loop system for public health systems. So I've been going to the hospital quite a bit lately. And the thing that always strikes me is that the systems there, they always take an incredibly long time. Like I can't tell you how many times a nurse has said something to the effect of, oh, just bear with me. The system is really slow or it's really sleepy or whatever. And I can see the system over their shoulder as well. And it looks like it's running on Windows 98. It's just incredibly old. It doesn't look like it's been given much thought. Um, it sort of seems more like some sort of system that needs to be satiated. It's just like, it needs this data, put it in, please. And I'm wondering, how did you end up in a position where there was someone who recognized that design was going to be the solution to this problem to make the most of that very small amount of time you have? How do we get people in healthcare to care about design? It's a great question. And there's not, as you can imagine, there's not an easy answer to this. Um, there are a bunch of reasons why health systems are complicated. Um, and they're not all nefarious. They're complicated because human health is really complicated, right? That's a big part of it is if you, um, you know, you can simplify things somewhat, but if you oversimplify things, you can hurt people. And so people generally, you know, err on the side of completeness, right? So you, you know as much about the patient as possible. They're also um, complicated because the health system is complicated. Even in a, a basic clinic in a place like India, you're going to get checked in at the front desk by one person. Then you're going to see a triage nurse who's going to take your vitals, like your blood pressures. Then if your blood pressure is high, she's going to send you to a medical officer to be diagnosed. And the medical officer is going to diagnose you and treat you. And then you're going to go to the pharmacist down the hall to get your medicines. And then you're going to leave the clinic. So in order for a data system to work, you're collecting little pieces of data all down that little chain. And this is a tiny hospital. I'm talking about like a six-staff hospital, right? So a tiny little primary care clinic. As you can imagine, it becomes more and more complex the bigger the hospital. And so your system can't just satisfy just one, one character in this ballet, right? And so the, the trick with a lot of the software is they customize it for all these different user groups and try to make you know, a complex system that fits into each of their workflows. And you know, as I just explained, the clinical workflow that you have to fit into is quite complicated. Now, for the less good reasons why some healthcare is, you know, systems are, are, are well done, they're often not built for patients or healthcare workers. They're built for either bureaucrats or people who, um, or billing systems for, for people who pay for, for health, right? And so, like, in America, for instance, um, the EHR is largely optimized for billing, which is a huge challenge, right? You have to put in all the little ticky-tacky things you did as a, as a doctor, Partly because of patient health, partly because if you don't do that, the insurer is not going to compensate you for the work you just did. Um, and then even in public health, so in a place like India or Bangladesh, what happens a lot of the time is somebody in the capital city will choose what data needs to be entered. And it's usually, don't get me wrong, it's usually a medical person 
So this bureaucrat, somebody who treated patients 30 years ago and then um, went up the chain and now is, you know, a very important person in the Ministry of Health. And what they want is as much data as possible to monitor their system. And you can see the incentive. They're like, oh, okay, wouldn't it be great if I just knew how many of my patients got a serum creatinine lab? Wouldn't it be really helpful to know if pregnant women over the age of 30 are easier to control their hypertension than, you know, um, you know, younger women. You can very much imagine why you'd want to ask a lot of questions. But what happens is they end up putting 52 fields in that you need to ask. I want to know every one of my patients. Are they a smoker? Are What's their body mass index, their BMI? Um, have they had a serum creatinine lab? These are all things I've seen in hypertension control programs. They want to ask all these questions, and you can see why they might want to because, you know, risk analysis to um, pinpoint certain patients for, for um, kind of uh, edge cases. But in the end, what they're asking is for every healthcare worker to enter 30 or 40 fields of data at every visit in a three-minute patient visit. And they kind of just don't add it up. And once you bring it up with them and you talk about it, oh, they'll make adjustments. But no, everyone is kind of disconnected from being in the field, right? They, they work in a big office building in the city, and they really forget what conditions were like in a rural hospital, and they just ask for really unrealistic things. Or they, they think that their program is the only program being implemented in that hospital because it's a really important program to them, right? I'm, I'm in charge of hypertension, therefore everyone's got to care about hypertension, right? It kills lots of people. But the dengue program says the same thing, and the tuberculosis program says the same thing, and the antenatal care unit definitely says the same thing. And now you've got 300 fields in every you know, hospital that need to be filled out. So this happens in the UK, and it's a problem. This happens in the US, and it's a problem. You know, like, this is a common issue when you read books about kind of digital systems in healthcare. They're like, doctors spend too much time facing away from their patient, writing in a computer, when they came to work to look a patient in the face and treat that patient. And we all know it's a problem. And it's just very acute when you work in a place where an average visit is two to four minutes. I mean, it's just unbelievable that you could ask somebody to spend more than 15 or 20 seconds to record data. Um, but they're asked to do minutes of data entry in a three-minute visit. It just looks, it looks just totally ridiculous. So as designers, we're sort of naturally very empathetic so I can understand how it would sort of fall to us to try and make that person in that central office sort of understand what that clinician's sort of role is going to be like and that they really don't have the time to be filling out all 40 or 50 of these fields in such a small amount of time but should designers be the arbiters of of these constraints and should we like is it our role to to reach these compromises between these different audiences well, I, I'm you use the word arbiter and um, that's a very strong term. Designers should not be the arbiters of how patients are treated. Um, you know, that's very clear, I think. Designers, though, can be excellent facilitators. And I think that's where um, the greatest strength of designers are in senior roles, is thinking about strategy and facilitation. And in this case, I think... What often happens is the people making decisions in public health programs um, are not technologists and they're, they're definitely not designers. Um, they're thinking high level from you know, a medical standpoint. 
And you see this a lot, you know, if you've ever worked in, in client services, like at a web design agency or something, and you're like, oh, the client asked for the silliest things. And you're like, yeah, but they're asking for something that they want, but they, they don't understand the constraints of the technology or the, you know, what users are capable of. And that's your job as a technologist. I wouldn't necessarily say as a designer, as a technologist, I think it's, it's to um, help people make good technology choices, right? And in this case, bringing data from the field of how clinical work happens, bringing those healthcare workers with you to talk to the decision makers, you know, I don't think we have to speak for the um, healthcare workers. I think what we're usually doing is transmitting kind of what the healthcare workers want to the the, the authorities. Um, that can work really well, and I think that actually is a really good role for designers is to 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 play that um, that kind of neutral third party who's able to facilitate the the communication between the field and and the um, the decision makers at the central organization. Less of an arbiter and more of a mediator, perhaps. Yes, that, that's a good distinction. So how do you get these disparate parties, these uh, different audiences, to respect and understand the sort of the different constraints that they're working under? What were some of the challenges that you faced whilst working on this project? Yeah, so um, we, we face challenges every day with this. And I think the... The, you know, it may not surprise you to hear this, but I think the, the one of the magic tools is user research. So I've got you know uh, three user researchers in India and one user researcher in uh, Ethiopia and a half-time user researcher in Nigeria. And <clears throat> we are constantly talking to healthcare workers, um, both you know at the beginning of the project doing a lot of observational work. So going and just watching workflows, looking at kind of what the constraints are within the healthcare environment, where the opportunities are. Doing things like, a, when I first went to India, I was asking a lot of nurses um, what phone was in their pocket. And they'd all look at me like I was crazy. They're like, what, are you trying to buy a cell phone? And I was like, no, no, I'm just curious. You know, I've got this phone. I'd show her my phone. I'd be like, what phone do you have? And they're like, oh, you know, I have this Chinese Oppo phone or, a, you know, a um, you know, they all Samsung or Oppo phones, like good smartphones. I was like, okay, there's an interesting opportunity. You know, there's some um, good technology sitting in the, the nurse's pocket that's not being used for work that she might be willing to use. And so doing that observational work up front, doing a lot of prototyping work. And the nice thing with prototyping is you can try both your ideas and other people's ideas. So we do, you know, healthcare is a really great place for prototyping work because Launching real products is dangerous. You know, you have to be extremely cautious. This isn't the kind of place you can move fast and break things, right? Um, we do a lot of prototyping work, and, and that means doing high-fidelity prototypes that look functional and putting them in healthcare workers' hands and have them do kind of um, demonstration tasks. Like, okay, you know, here's our new registration flow. Can you please enter 10 patients? And, you know, I'm going to write their details on a card I want to see you enter their, their information in the app. This lets you, one, try your own ideas. And, you know, one of our constraints was trying to get this time down to, you know, to 15 seconds for a follow-up visit. But it also lets us try things when our partners, like the Ministry of Health, will ask us for things that we think are unreasonable. I don't have to just say, oh, Daniel Burke, a designer sitting in London, thinks this is unreasonable. I mean, they should dismiss me if I said that. You know, I've got a lot of experience, but, like, what do I know? You know, I'm often wrong about things. 
But what I'll do sometimes is go and try their idea and say, hey, you know what? Those questions are seem important. Let's go try them. And we try it and they, you know, go through the form and it adds 20 seconds to the, the time to fill out the form. I can come back with that real data and be like, listen, like we tried this with your healthcare workers and like, look at the data. I think it's, I think it's probably a bad idea. And they're, they're not monsters. <laughs> uh, you know, they'll listen to this information and, and oftentimes we, we end up in the right place. So I'm seeing a lot of parallels between what you're saying and the work that I do. I work in a fintech, we do mortgage lending. And so obviously the stakes aren't as high as working with people's health, but it is a very complex industry to be working in. Specifically, I work with underwriters and their underwriting deals that are worth potentially millions of pounds in some cases. And they're very much the subject experts within that field, right? I've never been an underwriter before. I think with that comes a certain level of humility and being able to cede control and trust that they have the user's best intentions at heart as well. But then there's also a balance to be struck as a technologist, as a designer, where you can educate and you can push back on their preconceptions and say, this could be so much better if only you were willing to think about your subject matter differently. So in my case, that would be underwriting, in your case, medical care. I was wondering whether you've come across these kinds of conversations and how you've handled them i think you know what you just described i think is really accurate i think the idea of having um enough humility to listen to your partners and especially listen to healthcare workers is is really important but you also have to be confident in your skills right this is a very very hard place to design usable project products and you know i have been designing um usable products for 22 years so a lot of it is about having the confidence to go try your ideas, right? And that's, that's why I'm so bullish on prototyping because it does allow us to um, not just build whatever our partners tell us to, right? When I meet with the WHO, we, we work with the WHO, the Ministry of Health, and um, the Indian Council of Medical Research in India. Um, in, India is our biggest deployment. And I don't have to do exactly what the... Ministry of Health tells me to do or the WHO tells me to do, but I do have to go try what they say, right? And so a lot of what we do is um, is going and having good, you know, um, facilitated discussions with them, trying ideas in the field quickly and um, cheaply, and then coming back with data on, on what works and what doesn't work. And I think that's really useful because it means you don't have to be saying no all the time. And it means everybody can have their ideas tried. Right? I, I really hate, I met a designer when I was a kid. I was, I was maybe two or three years into design and I met this, I was in rural Canada and I once met this guy and he was like, I fucking hate my clients. Why are they trying to make all the decisions? I'm the one who went to fucking art school. I still remember this 20 years later and I remember being really turned off by his arrogance. I was like, you're not going to learn that much in art school. Like, you're not as much, you're designing menus at restaurants in rural Canada. Like, you're not Milton Glaser. <laughs> like, I was like, you know, it's maybe you should listen to your restaurateur. They've had clients for a long time. They've had a lot of customers. And you don't have to do everything they say, but I think the idea that, like, designers, just let designers do what they know how to do and get out of the way is, um, 
Maybe that works if you're designing Dribble, um, you know, design tools specifically for designers, but like in finance or healthcare, that attitude will, um, yeah, I mean, it, just, it won't work. Even if all you want to do is succeed, like I don't care about, you know, if it makes you friends or not, but you won't succeed uh, acting like that. I'm not trying to be nice. I'm trying to be successful. <laughs> <laughs> it's not quite on healthcare, but I think it's an interesting side note where you said you're not going to learn a lot in art school. And so I'd be interested to hear your feelings on formal design education versus people who learn on the job. Okay. I did not mean to denigrate all <laughs> art schools. I just meant art school is not going to prepare you to, to work in, in a specific field. Right, it teaches you fu different fundamentals. Um, I did not go to art school, though. Um, I uh, there really was, was were no web design schools when I was um, growing up in design. So it was in the late 1990s. There was maybe digital was mm. it digital island uh, in Denmark? Um, mm. Is it Cyber Hyper Island? island, Hyper Island. That's it. <laughs> Hyper Island, the way to get on the information superhighway. <laughs> I think. You know, technology is really one of those places I think where apprenticeship and um, and and really experimentation and, and trying things you you can get a long way on it. So I think there's a lot of value in in schools. I think there's you know some people obviously you don't know, really benefit from from being in a classroom with a lot of people. But I really was lucky that I met a bunch of nerds in high school. We started a web design agency together when I was uh, 17 years old. And we really kind of learned as we went. Um, so I don't know if maybe the web was easier back then, but we used to right click and view source on websites and look, you know, look at how people like Doug Bowman and in San Francisco, how they were doing things. And, uh, you know, Dan Cederholm, you know, people like that uh, were doing things and uh, learned a lot. And yeah, it worked out okay. <laughs> nice. So I have two questions that are going around in my mind right now. And the first one is around when you have a controlled audience and whether that compromises the quality of design. So I get to speak directly to the underwriters at where I work and we can to some degree determine the environment in which they use the tools and products that we create. And do you think that has an impact on how you go about solving a design problem because not only are you controlling the solution now or perhaps the constraints are part of the solution but you can also control the contributing factors to how they interact with this thing the second question is around designing products and tools not just for industries that you're not familiar with but also cultures that you're not familiar with there's many examples of charities going to lower middle income countries and trying to apply western solutions western sensibilities to situations that are fundamentally not western and then their efforts fall on their face how do you try to avoid this what kind of actions do you take let's start with the first question one of the interesting things with designing in healthcare is that there aren't that many situations where you can alter the clinical workflow. The clinical workflow is, is a complicated ballet and it's different depending on which size of hospital or, or where the hospital is. Um, in our case, 
A hypertension program has to have a lot of touch points. So it can't just be in a village because the patients also go to the large hospital in the in the city. And so we're in everything from a little clinic in a village, so what's called a sub-center or a health and wellness center in India, which is literally like a one-room like concrete structure in the middle of a village. So very, very small with a tiny staff. To primary care, which is you know where a medical officer is, next level of care, all the way up to the district hospital, which is a large hospital with a few hundred beds, probably four or 500 patients in the outpatient department every day. The flows are extremely different. And the typical way that software is created for, for the, the, the health space is it's very configurable. Every hospital and sometimes every clinician can customize their user interface to be able to like do exactly what they needed to do. We went in the exact other direction, and this is a fairly radical thing to do in, in healthcare, is we did as little as possible. If you think of WhatsApp, WhatsApp is used by doctors in India to share information about patients with their clinical staff. I mean, this wouldn't be kosher in America, but in India, it's really common, right? They're sharing clinical information. They are sometimes messaging their patients. They are doing all kinds of things in that thing. And then they, at the end of the day, they're messaging their family about all kinds of other stuff. It's a very flexible tool, right? Partly because it doesn't do very much. It does a few basic things really well. That's how we think of simple. Simple is very flexible. You don't have to enter a blood pressure every time because the outpatient department might be registering the patients and then sending the patient somewhere else to get their blood pressure taken. You don't have to, you know, we don't force people down specific workflows because we want to be flexible. And if you've ever been to India, and I've spent quite a few months in India now, the only consistent thing about India is it's inconsistent. It is the most heterogeneous place on earth that I've ever been to. It's just, there's 1.4 billion people. There's many states. Some of those states are much larger than the UK. There's a few states in India with more than 200 million people in them. The variety of people and the variety of care that they're getting is extreme. So the idea that you could like enforce a workflow in your software, I think is, is a, a recipe for disaster. Um, so, we don't aim to have a captured audience. We aim to have an extremely flexible system um, and, and very simplified system. All right, your second question. How can you design clinical software from America for a place like India or Ethiopia or Bangladesh? Um, very different places, very different cultures and very different um, culture of, of healthcare. Um, the short answer is you, you can't, and I think it's foolhardy to think you can. Um, I go and spend as much time as I can in India, and more importantly, I hire a team in India to work with me. Um, even for them, it's sometimes hard to relate to clinical care in India because most of the tech kids in India are used to private care, right? Fairly high-level private care. What the kind of care that patients are getting in rural India is very, very different. And so even for them, a huge amount of our time is dedicated to spending time in the field, listening to healthcare workers, watching healthcare workers do their jobs, 
and trying to um, to create tools with them, not just for them. Um, that sounds corny, and everyone says you know that kind of similar kind of bromides. Um, but we do try to take this extremely seriously. Um, except for COVID, I would normally be going to India every couple of months. I'd be in Ethiopia the same amount. Um, and it's also really important that we've got um, public health staff who are Indian, who are have been working in the, the public health programs in India for like 20, 25 years, who are, are equal partners, you know, who work literally on my team and um, really inform our work. So do you have different versions of Simple in Ethiopia versus India versus Bangladesh because those countries are different? Or is it one solution across all of them? So that's a, that's a great question. And we started in India. If we only ever succeed in India, we'll have been successful. There are 200 million hypertensive patients just in India. I mean, it's just enormous country. Um, you know, I lived in America for, you know, 12, 13 years. And America, to me, I'm from Canada. America's a big country. And then you go to India, and it's like America plus a billion people. It's just enormous. So we started in India, and we optimized it for India. And then uh, we went to Bangladesh. Bangladesh has a lot of similarities to India. They're historically connected. Um, unsurprisingly, it worked pretty well there. Um, last February, we launched in Ethiopia, and I've only been to Ethiopia a couple of times, so I'm not super knowledgeable of Ethiopia. And we launched there during COVID, so I was very nervous. You know, it's a very different place, economically different, um, technological savviness of healthcare workers is different. The benefit of creating very, very, very simple tools is that you don't necessarily need to overly customize it. So we have it local language, for instance, like Simple's translated into 14 different languages now. Um, but in terms of the actual software, there's only um, a few minor parts where it's outputting um, specific types of data for the local health program that are different. But sort of shockingly, it's, it's been working really well in Ethiopia. Um, again, it comes down to simplification and doing lots of user testing with, with community health workers. Were you prepared but, for it to not be a success then? And did you have a plan B if that was the yeah. case? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> if you look at the world of public health tools, the, the road is littered with skeletons. Um, many people have tried to make um, health you know, software in this, in this area and have failed. We have shown some success. I, I'm not going to have too much hubris here. We're helping manage about 850,000 patients right now. That is a drop in the bucket. That shows some promise. Let's say that. We didn't crash right out the door. Um, so we're showing some promise. I think there's still a lot of challenges, especially interoperability with local systems. So we feel more integrated into the local programs as opposed to just being a, a narrow, um, a narrow uh, tool uh, before we can really say this successful. But in terms of usability, um, we've been very pleased with how usable it's been Um by healthcare workers both in Ethiopia and in Bangladesh. That's great. I was interested when you were talking about the idea of making a tool be flexible and very simple. Um, I've been having similar conversations uh, where I work. Um, I'm designing CRMs and tools for people in real estate, and they are very time poor as well. Um, 
and a lot of important information needs to be captured to make sure that um, you know deals exchange and complete um, in, a, in a timely manner. And I know that there's a lot of creativity involved in, in selling a home and things like that. And I want to make sure that, that these platforms aren't just flexible, but sort of expressive, that they can sort of work in the way that they like to work. But I get a lot of pushback from saying that if we keep the systems open and flexible and we don't use workflows, then there's a danger that people are going to lose time or waste time because they don't know what to prioritize next. And sometimes they might also miss really crucial bits of information, particularly in healthcare. That's, you know, lives could be on the line if we don't have the correct information and it's not uh, accurately entered. I was just wondering how often do you come across this balance between keeping things simple and, um, and flexible and making sure that that sort of due diligence is done? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, this is a constant push and pull is how much do you trust the healthcare worker to use their own knowledge and skills to be able to do things correctly? And how much do you guide them or do you put them on rails? People in ministries of health often want to put healthcare workers on rails. They're like, oh, they must do this and then they must do that. And they forget that like different people in the system are doing different pieces of data entry. They're like, oh, everybody must have a blood pressure entered. And you're like, yeah, but what if they're being registered at the front desk and that person doesn't take the blood pressure? Like, oh, crap. Okay, we'll just make a different user role for them and they'll have a different flow. And you're like, listen, it's India. Like, there there aren't six flows we can build for. There are 60,000 flows. Like, there is no homogenization of the system. Um, So what we're trying to do is balance some nudges in the app. And we do have some reminders that if you didn't do something that's generally expected, we're like, hey, are you are you really trying to miss that thing? And But we do let people, for the most part, break out of the, the workflow. Um, and if you learn, I mean, as I was saying before, if you've learned nothing else by watching healthcare workers, it's just that everybody does something differently. And that's okay. That their goal, the, the problem is, their goal is to treat the patient, right? Their goal isn't to enter data for you. And so if you put them on rails, and I wonder if you run into this in real estate, if you put them on rails, they'll enter data because they just want to get through the system. And if you force them to enter data, they'll enter garbage data. And then you end up with garbage in, garbage out in your system. And you think you know what's happening, but you're actually dealing with um, incorrect data, which is even worse than no data at all. Yeah, I definitely come across the same problem. And the system that we have at the moment, the sort of legacy system, it's definitely a thing that needs to be satisfied. It's not something that helps them get work done. And there's something I'm trying to be very conscious in in what I'm doing now is that I can't really ask anything of them that isn't going to help them achieve their goals. If it's just for the sake of the system, then as you say, they're just going to put in a load of, of, of rubbish to just sort of get through the day. Yeah. This is a perennial problem in in healthcare, this idea of garbage in, garbage out. It makes me think about when you said, oh, we'll just add another user role for that, or we'll add another flow to accommodate for this thing that I want. A phrase I often come back to both in design and in my life is that we create our own problems. And you can quite often watch as people design themselves or engineer themselves into a box and then try to design or engineer their way back out of that box that they've constructed themselves. Yeah. Do you guys have the concept of Tupperware in the UK? 
Oh, absolutely. You have the, yeah. the plastic containers for food, and you try to put down one corner, and the other corner pops, pops up, up, and yeah, exactly. you're always like, can't quite get it down. This is the problem you're facing. <laughs> and so to bring it back, I wonder whether this is an educational piece or a training piece, bringing along stakeholders, bureaucrats, whoever's setting public health policy, so they start to think yes. in a human-centered way, in the same way that you would approach a design problem. And it's also to remember that there are many ways to get healthcare workers to, to do the right thing, including training. Sometimes we'll do something and they're like, oh, the technology must enforce this workflow. And I was like, you should really train your healthcare workers on like what to do. Like the, the software can't like solve all problems. So, you know, we think of this very much as a systems design problem. Like it's not just the software, it's software and paper and training and equipment you need all of these things to work together in order to succeed. You and I actually spoke about this a bit the other day, that idea that when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I think there's sometimes a habit, a bad habit as a designer or a technologist to think, oh, here's a problem. I can design a solution to get me out of this. And sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes it's nothing to do with you. It's perhaps operational and all you need to do is flag the problem and then hand it off to somebody who's really good at operations or training or whatever it is and let them handle it. Absolutely. I mean, that's the operation side of healthcare is super important. And I think there is opportunity for design to have impact on operations. Um, so I don't think necessarily it's just someone else's problem. I think we can work with them on it. But yes, I think it's really important to remember not every solution has to come through making a feature. And in terms of designers working with operations people in, in healthcare or working on healthcare products in general, how would you suggest someone go about moving into this field? The, the designers who are listening who are thinking that this is a great way to have a huge impact how do they find those inroads into working in the healthcare industry? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, I'm I'm not sure where to look. Um, so I work in public health, which is kind of a whole different realm of healthcare. And I think one of the big problems is, you know, I'll, I'll speak specifically about public health because what I know more about. One of the problems in public health is most public health people don't know much about technology to start with. And they know even less about design and technology. And what's really missing are these bridges, right? If they don't know anything about technology and design, that they don't even know to look for you as someone who could come and contribute to them. Um, and once you do get in there, nobody speaks your language or understands you. And you're really, you know, starting from scratch of you're a pioneer again. You know, it's like 20 years ago in technology. We're figuring it all out to begin with. Um, so I'm not sure there are a lot of job listings just waiting for you to pick up, but I do think that there, I mean, there are, there are opportunities in healthcare, you know, places like Babylon or, um, you know, I'm sure there are lots of, of healthcare startups in, in the UK. Um, but in public health, I think it's, a, it's a lot about building, um, some skills, maybe getting involved in, um, something like the GDS, um, looking at opportunities more in government. I think that's that's probably the the greatest opportunities to 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 work on public health, um, and then there are, there are government opportunities in other countries as well. If if you can kind of get out of your comfort zone and and go to a new country, do you think the scope for impact but, is greater in public health than it is in private health? I mean, they're both great. 
I think there's a lot of opportunity generally. I think the in public health, uh, you know, there's a really good book by Anand Giridavas called Winners Take All. Um, I'd highly encourage people to, to check that out if you're thinking about how to have like um, global impact. And he puts the he he makes a very strong case for public services. The argument, and you know, maybe this is more obvious in the UK than it would be in the United States, but the um, private healthcare largely impacts wealthy people. Um, it's it's geared towards billing. It's and when you gear towards billing, you gear towards the people with the most money who can pay you the most. Um, something like hypertension control, which I work on, there's no money to be made in it. The drugs are all cheap, generic drugs. The treatment is very quick and doesn't require specialized equipment. Um, there's huge volumes of patients, but in India, like even at a private clinic, a uh, visit for hypertension is only you know, a few rupees. It's very, very cheap. So to have impact in, to enormous impact in, to lots of people um, often requires strengthening public systems. Um, and so public health is a way to treat entire populations as opposed to looking at, you know, one clinic at a time or, or who can pay for, pay for services. Interviewing Daniel was such a pleasure and we're really grateful for the time he gave up to speak to us about such an important cause. That's all we have time for this week. As ever, please reach out to us and let us know what you thought of this episode and if you would like to get involved with the show. See you next time. Bye. Bye.